invite you to come over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, I want you to do something before I do something. I want you, because once you get to 1 Corinthians 13, you'll probably get the clue on what what our theme is today. But I want you to turn to someone or go to someone and say these three words. And not only do I want you to say it, I want someone to say it to you. So if you've said it but nobody said it to you, go stand in front of somebody until they realize something's happening. And the three words are, you are loved. All right? Anybody didn't say that to someone? Okay, get out. No. uh, Anyone didn't have it yet said to them? Wow, great. You're a loving bunch. And I'm starting a series today entitled Loving Like Jesus. And I've asked Ben Rector to share a song that he wrote and that became very, very, very popular and famous Uh, not too long ago, and this is going to be my theme song for this series, so let's hear it. I'd be recognized out in a crowd But the funny thing is Every time I've gotten what I want It lets me down But now I just want to look more like love I just want to look like love This whole world is spinning crazy And I can't quite keep up It's the one thing around here That we don't have quite enough of So I just want to look a little more Like love I used to think I needed all the answers I used to need to know that I was right I used to be afraid of things I couldn't cover up in black and white But now I just want to look more 
like love I just want to look more like love This whole world is spinning crazy I can't quite keep up It's the one thing around here That we don't have quite enough of So I just want to look a little more like love I find the farther that I climb There's always another line A mountain top It's never gonna stop And the more of anything I do The thing that always ends up true Is getting what I want will never be enough so I just want to look more like love I just want to look more like love Cause This whole world is spinning crazy I can't quite keep up It's the one thing around here we don't have quite enough of So I just want to look a little more Like love Like You ever feel like your world is spinning crazy and you just can't keep up? I hope you will enjoy that song. You're going to be hearing it a lot in the next few weeks. And uh, it'll get in your head for a while and then my prayers will get in your heart and in your everyday life. So our first message in the series that I start today, simply entitled, A More Excellent Way. I don't know if you heard the story about the actor who was playing the part of Christ in the Passion Play. They have a very famous Passion Play presentation down in the Ozarks. And as he carried the cross, this man up the hill, uh, a Taurus began heckling him and making fun of him. Actually shouting insults at him as he walked along. Finally, the actor had taken all that he could take. And he threw down the cross he was carrying. He walked over to this Taurus who was heckling him, and he punched him out. Well, needless to say, when the play was over, the director took him aside and said, I know that that guy was a pest, but I can't condone what you did. Besides, you're playing the part of Jesus, and Jesus never retaliated. So don't do anything like that ever again. And the man promised he wouldn't. But the next day, he was back carrying the cross, and the heckler was back heckling, worse than before. And he finally exploded, and he went over to the heckler, and he punched him out again. <laughs> the director said, that's it, you're fired, I'm getting rid of you, we can't have you behaving this way, not while you're playing the part of Jesus. 
So the actor begged him. He said, look, really, please, 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 give me one more chance. Just give me another chance. I really need this job, and I can handle it. And if it happened again, uh, I wouldn't, I'd just ignore it. It won't happen again. So the director decided to give him one more chance. And the next day, there he is, same spot, same time, carrying the cross, same cross, up this road, up this street, same street. And sure enough, the heckler was there again. You could tell that the actor was really trying to control himself, but there was something under his skin that was really bothering him. And it was just about to get the best of him, and he was clenching his fists, and he was grinding his teeth, and finally he looked over at the heckler and he said, I'll meet you after the resurrection. (laughs) You know, sometimes... Stay with me. Sometimes it is hard for those who profess to be Christians to behave like Christians should behave. Period. Yes? No? We try to carry our crosses up the hill, but if someone crosses us, we tend to lose our composure. We tend to behave in much the same way the rest of the world behaves. Have you ever noticed that? Then afterwards, you're second-guessing yourself, like, why did I respond that way? Did I really mean to do that? Was that a nice thing to do? Oh, what did I do to my testimony, if I have one? But the Bible teaches us that we are to be people who exercise love in all of our relationships with one another. Listen to these words from Romans chapter 12 and verse 18. If it is... I love that disclaimer, if... (laughs) If it is possible, Paul said, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And again, uh, Paul writing in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 21, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. And then the writer of the Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 14, still again says, make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. And those of you that are trying to notate, and I know those references are not on the screen before you, let me give them to you again. Romans 12, 18, Ephesians 4, 2, and Hebrews 12, 14. Now, all of those scriptures say the same thing. They're saying that it may be difficult sometimes, and, and, and not everybody is easy to love. But Paul says, if it is possible, we're to live in peace and harmony with everyone. And that brings me to the the motivation that I have today to start a series, a few messages that will deal with how to get along with other people and will focus on 1 Corinthians 13. That will be our, our springboard. We'll be in and out of that love chapter, and, and I hope you'll become familiar with it. Matter of fact, I hope this week, as your homework, you'll take it seriously and read that chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, even if it's a familiar one to you, because reading it again, you'll get something new that jumps off the page. And this morning, we're going to look at the first three verses, that's all, of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, which Paul begins by, he's in his inference is, or he's saying, now I'm going to show you a more, actually the most excellent way to live your life. And a couple of things that I want us to notice here. First is, 
the importance of love in our lives. The Apostle Paul here is saying, I want to show you the best way to take care of virtually every situation, and that is the way of love. And then he points out that love is more important, and if you miss this, you've really missed the whole text of what I want to say today. Love is more important than at least five other things that Christians consider very important. And they're enlisted for us right here in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, 2, and 3. In verse 1, Paul says that love is more important than spiritual gifts. I, I, I want to just stop there for a second. Uh, I want that to sink in. I want you to get that, get the meaning of that. Love is more important than spiritual gifts. Here's what he said. He said, if I speak in the tongues or the languages of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. On the day of Pentecost, when the very first gospel message was preached, God gave the apostles a special gift of being able to speak in languages that they had never learned, probably never even heard before, and the reason for that was there were so many people gathered from different parts of the, the kingdom that the people could hear the message in their own language and could understand what was being said, otherwise it would just been gibberish to them. And, and, and historians who have researched this said that there were at least 16 different dialects represented on the day of Pentecost in that great gathering. And God gave to the, to the apostles this great gift of being able, if you will, to simultaneously translate or to just tell the people what was being said, uh, and they heard it in their own language. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is saying that if God gave him the gift of speaking, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, he said, if he gave me the gift of speaking every human language, and then he throws in even the heavenly language of the angels, but he did not have love, then he'd be nothing more than a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And that sounds good, and we've used that verse before, and we've probably repeated it more times than enough, but exactly what does that mean? Well, back in the first century, there was a big gong or a cymbal hanging at the entrance of most pagan temples. And if you've ever seen a picture, a photo of pagan temples or ever visited one, you would know that that's true and you could pick almost any pagan religion and there'd be a big, like a symbol or a gong near or at the front or the entrance of that. And here's why they put it there. When people came in to worship their false gods, they would hit them. Not, not the people, they would hit the gong. And the reason for that is they wanted to wake up the pagan gods so they'd be careful to listen to their prayers. That's the tradition behind the gongs. You see, the truth is, love is more important than any spiritual gift. And we stress the spiritual gifts, and we talk about the spiritual gifts, and we do studies of Romans 12 and, and some of the related chapters in Scripture. But Paul himself is saying here, love is more important than all that. He said, if I could speak all those languages, and if I 
could speak the language of heaven, whatever that is, and communicate and correspond like the angels do, still, if I didn't have love, I'd be nothing. You can add it up to zero. And then secondly, if you come down to verse 2, Paul's saying, love's more important than knowledge. Because he said, if I have the gift of prophecy, and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, but have no love, I am nothing. Think of that. Think of that. He says that even if you know it all, so this part of the message is to the know-it-alls that are in the room. If you know everything that there is to know, every minute detail of nuclear science, you know everything there is to know about medicine and the medical field, you know everything there is to know about philosophy, everything you could possibly know about psychology, everything that has ever been taught about theology, and every other kind of ology, if you know it all but have no love, Paul says you are nothing at all. It has always amazed me that when people look at our society, especially Western civilization, and they try to analyze what's wrong with us, and why we're killing and abusing one another, that those experts always seem to come back with the same answer. Uh, we need more education. We need better educated people. We need to get everybody educated. And then we won't have these problems anymore. And i got to tell you, <laughs> I, I could take a sidetrack right here and keep you till the next mission trip gets home. But anyway, I won't do that. I don't think education is the answer to any of our problems. Matter of fact, I know it isn't. And I'm certainly not opposed to education. If anybody in here, uh, I, I think you, I could state my case and, and probably prove it. I attended no fewer than six colleges. I have three earned degrees. I spent 22 years in educational administration and I taught in a college. That doesn't make me very smart, but I'm just saying it makes the case that I don't put education down. I don't think it ha I'm not going to say it has no relevance and it has no place and it's not important. Uh, we need here's 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 what he here's what he said. I'm certainly not opposed to education, but listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. In chapter 8, you can get this in your notes, verse 1. He said, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Those are Paul's words. I don't think we need more knowledge. And I've said this from the pulpit for years and years and years. Even when it comes to knowledge of Scripture and knowledge of spiritual things. We don't need revelation of new truth. We just need to practice the truth we already know. That would keep us busy 24-7. We need a whole lot more love. It's like that song says, that's the one thing we're missing. And the hearts of people need to change. The hearts of people. Not the head, the heart. And you look at our society today, whether it be the U.S. or anywhere in this hemisphere, or go to Europe, or just anywhere, all around the world. And you say, well, what would change this? The only thing that will change it is a change of heart 
for the people. And if you ever want society to change, that's where you have to start. So I'll just say that one more time. We need a whole lot more love, and the hearts of people need to change before society will ever change. Now, third thing that we find here, Paul says love is more important than faith. Can you believe that? Can you believe I just said that? Can you believe you just heard that? Now, he doesn't say that faith isn't important. He just says that love is more important. It's more important than faith. He said this. He said, if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, what am I? I am nothing. We're told in Scripture, faith is so important. And who wants to minimize that? It is so important. It's so important. Matter of fact, another place in Scripture, it's so important that you will learn that it's impossible to please God without faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And, and, and I trust that all of you here this morning have faith. But what is your faith? Do you know what your faith is? Can you describe your faith? Do you know what it really entails? I mean, what do you believe for sure this morning? If I were to give you a sheet of paper and supply a pen for you and say we're going to take the next 15 minutes and all I want you to do is write down on that sheet of paper exactly what you believe right now for sure. How full would that paper be? Like, do you believe that God, our God, is the creator of this universe? Do you believe that Jesus Christ, His only begotten, virgin-born Son, came into our world and lived a sinless life, and that He died and was buried, and on the third day rose again? Do you believe that He, Jesus, is now at the right hand of the Father, and He's preparing a place for you, and a place for me, and a place for all who will believe, and that one day He will come again? Do you believe that the Holy Spirit is our guide? Do you believe that He's our counselor? Do you believe that He's our comforter? Do you believe all of that? And if you believe all those things, and you say, yes, yes, Pastor Bob, yes, 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 and yes to all those things. Now I don't have to think about what to write down. I got it all. And it, just hear me now. If you believe all these things, well and good, I commend you, and I suppose many of you believed all those things before I listed them, but the Bible teaches if you believe all the right stuff, but you do not have love, then you are Nothing. I didn't say it. I'm just telling you what's in the good book. Because even faith is of no value unless it's backed up by love. And again, James, James talks about this in, in the book of James. And you look it up, find it, and, and see if that, you can't bear this out, what I'm saying. I'll give you a quick little example. How many of you are familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan? You've heard that term, but you know the Bible story. Okay majority of people. Let me just say this, and what you don't know, I want you to go and find this story in Scripture and get up on it, get, get versed. But look, the priest and the Levite, the first two people to come by, the man who was injured and down and bleeding and dying, actually, 
the priest and the Levite, in this story of the Good Samaritan, they had faith, they had religion, they had theology, they had form, they had morality, they had theology, they had pretty well anything you could ask for from a priest or a Levite. The problem was, those two men had no love. So what did they do? They saw this man in utter distress, calling for help, moaning and groaning and about to take his last breath. And they walked by, the Bible says, on the other side and just left that poor man lying there to die. See, you can have all the faith and all the orthodoxy and all the formality and all the stuff that looks like you're a Christ follower, but with no love, it equals zero. In Galatians 5 and verse 6, Paul says, the only thing that counts is faith, hear the rest of it, expressing itself, how? Through love. The only thing that counts. Think of the things that you and I do that we think really count. Think of the things we get in our heads. And we say, well, if I just do this, and I act that way, and I don't do such and such, and I go there here, and I go there, and I show up somewhere else, and I mind my manners, and watch my tongue, and all that good stuff, he'll be great with me. And the Bible clearly says that the only one thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Another thing that is more important than, than uh, that love is more important is, that is, is generosity. And, and this is one we don't, often, we don't often hit this one. We don't often touch on it, uh, and I don't know why, but uh, we've had some discussions lately about, about this theme, and you'll hear more about it as we go on. But in verse 3, Paul says this. Uh, let, me, let me actually read it for you. If I give all I possess to the poor, all. Now stop for a minute. Sometimes we read Scripture too quickly, and we just gloss over it. But think of those words, and pretend you're writing this. Pretend this is you saying it. If I give all, A-L-L, it's the small words in Scripture that kill us. You know, the if and the all. If I give all I possess to the poor. That, what would you think all means? Everything. Everything I have. If you gave it all and give over my body to hardship or the flames that I may boast, and I'll tell you what that means in just a moment, but do not have love, what have I gained? Nothing. nothing. I've gained nothing. Now notice he doesn't say and I, for one, am glad. He doesn't say, if I give 10%. He says, he says, if I give everything. If I empty my checking account, if I give my retirement funds, if I sell my house, if I cash in my insurance policies, and then if I sit on the corner with nothing left but what I'm wearing and giving it all away to help the poor, and I don't have love, then I am nothing at all. Just another poor beggar. No. You see, generosity is not enough. I could ask you, are you a generous person? I don't talk to many people 
that tell me otherwise. Everybody brags on themselves. How many of you get calls on your phone? Maybe you're like I am. You get them all the time. And, and I'm sure some of you do get a lot of calls. From people appealing for funds. Anybody beside me? Okay, four of us. And uh, the rest of you have another sin you've got to work on. That's lying, okay? Well, that'll be my next series. <laughs> Has anybody here never had an appeal, a phone appeal asking for funds of some kind? Funds is money. They're asking for your money. Because if you don't, give me your number, because I want to start rerouting my calls. Okay. I want you to know how it feels. And it's this, and I've got to tell you something about those calls. As far as I know, and I research everything I can, as far as I know... Those appeals are for causes that are worthwhile. In and of themselves, I'm going to say, say I think I'm safe to say probably 90% or more are very worthwhile. You wouldn't be just throwing your money to the wind to give something to them, and some of us have done that on many occasions. But you keep getting these appeals, and you keep having somebody asking you, and you keep seeing what the next cause is. And really, it baffles me to find out, oh, there's another cause. How many different, and, and I'm not against this, don't, don't get me wrong, don't, but I don't know how many different cancer associations there are. I don't know how many different heart associations there are. I don't know how many different diabetes associations there are. And I'm, as I said, 90 or more percent of them are all valid and they're, they're all, you know, they're, they're all legal and upfront and doing good work. But sometimes you just can't take one more call. They got this cause, you got that cause. Well, this cause is good. Yeah, but that cause is good. I know, but here's another cause. We just got a call today. Well, what about this cause and that cause? Pretty soon, you don't know where to start and where to stop. On and on and on it goes. Let's bring it to the church context. If you give, if you give, and for a Christian, giving is whatever you do beyond the tithe. If you give, why do you give? Do you give because the preacher preached a sermon on tithing or maybe he had a little stewardship uh, series of messages and tried to provoke the people to action? Or do you give because if you don't give, you feel guilty? Or do you give because you want to impress somebody else and you want to be sure to tell them? Or you want the church fathers to see, oh, wow, this one gave that and this one gave, wow, this is great. Do you give because you're afraid God will get you if you don't give? You give because you think you, this may be some motivation for some people sometime. I would doubt anybody in, in this church is in this category, but it is a motivation for some people. Because they give because they think if they give, they'll get more back. And you're going to be waiting a long time if that's your motivation. Matter of fact, all the reasons I just gave, everything from the preacher preaching on it to thinking you'll get more back if you give, those are all wrong reasons. Those are all wrong reasons. If the only reason that I give is to receive or to benefit myself, then love is absent and giving is empty. Giving to God is not measured by how much you give. It's measured by how much is left. I've said that probably a hundred times in different audiences. Same reaction every time. 
The motive for giving, this is going to come as a surprise, especially with the title of this message. The motive for giving should be love. Love for God, love for God's people. So Paul is saying to us here, listen up, folks, because love... And by the way, he's writing to the Corinthian church, a church that he started probably five or six years before this letter was penned, and he has heard word, he, word has come back to him, that they've kind of gone off the trail, they're off the reservation now, and they're doing this, and they're doing that, and they're just mixing law and grace, and they're, so, they're carnal. They're carnal. Their spirituality has kind of gone out the, out the window. And, and he hears of this and he's writing. And if you read that whole first letter of the Corinthians and then follow it into the second letter, you'll see he's correcting things. And he's saying, I already taught you this, but I want to put it down in writing so that you know exactly how you are to operate. And so he hits things like love and motivation and so on. And he's saying this in a, in a, in a hard-hitting letter that really should have gotten their attention. Love, he said, is more important than any spiritual gift. Love is more important than knowledge. Love is more important than faith. And love is more important than generosity. Then, he says, love is more important than, than accomplishments. In verse 3, he said, if I surrender my body to the flames or to hardships, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, what would Paul be talking about in that context back in that time? What would he be talking about? Obviously, he's talking about martyrdom. He's talking about being so faithful and so committed to God that he could end up dying because of his faith. And he did. So the question we have today is, how deep is our faith? How deep is your faith? How deep is it? How deep is your commitment? I mean, are you willing to lay down your life for God if it came to that? Do you know that many of our brothers and sisters in Christ are doing that every day, even as I speak right now in certain countries of the world? And in some of those places... The threat of that is getting more and more and more real and more intense. People are being, Christian people are being treated so cruelly. Nothing's been seen like this since about the 7th century. And, it, and, it, and, and people are, are being put in cages and drowned. People are being set on fire. People are being beheaded. People, Christian people are... Uh, 20-some Christian people that just this past week were killed in one of those countries. Somebody went in and just finished them off. Men and women and little children. And every time I hear a news report of that, I say, wow. I mean, they didn't have any choice, but I'm saying, would I be willing if I knew imminent danger and my life was in that danger, was on my doorstep, would I be that committed? Would I say, I'm not renouncing the name of Jesus Christ? Take my life if you have to. But I'm his and he's mine. How deep is our faith? Would you be willing to lay down your life for him if it came to that? Paul's saying that even if you go to church every time the church doors open, boy, we've got done a great disservice since these buildings have become the church over the last few hundred years. 
to, to have people believe. I don't think anybody's teaching it, or I hope they're not, but to have people believe that if you go to church, that's it. That's the free pass. That's to get out of jail free. That's do not pass go, do not collect $200, just go to heaven. I wish it were that easy. He's saying love is more important than all of this stuff. He's saying that if you go to church every time the church doors are open, or if you read your Bible faithfully like you ought to, and if you're praying like you ought to, and you're doing all the things that a Christian person ought to do, but there's no love behind all of that, then that is nothing in God's sight. Wow. That's humbling, isn't it? Yeah. It's haunting, too. So he's saying that love is more important than spiritual gifts. Love is more important than knowledge. Love is more important than faith. Love is more important than generosity. And more important than all the things that we know or ever do or could accomplish, love is greater. Even if what you accomplished was for the kingdom of God. Now, there's another aspect of this subject which I want to touch on today. I'm going to visit it. I won't camp there long. But I have to say it while we're in this mode. And it's the practice of love in everyday lives. I find that some people, some Christian people, they're, they're, so, they're so enshrouded, if you will, by the formality or the trappings of their church life that they can agree. They're in cocoon living. They can agree with all this I'm saying about love, but once they walk out of here on Sunday and walk into the world of reality on Monday... You can finish that sentence. So what about the practice of love in everyday lives? Love is very important, I would say, from what Paul's saying in verses 1, 2, and 3 of 1 Corinthians. The great love chapter, which is so often quoted, many times out of context, by the way. Matter of fact, love is so important that I think it's more important than most of us have ever realized. I've been, re- I've been revisiting this whole subject. That's why I decided to do a series. I don't think it would be a long series, but, but I think it's way, way, way more important than we ever realize. And we need to get back to it. And about a year ago, I came across this Ben Rector song, and it just spoke to my heart. It just did something. And I thought, it's so simple. And it's so true. And it's so where we're living. We need to sit and listen to that. And I've played it to myself over and over and over. Listen to what Jesus says in John 13, 34. Listen to this. He said, a new commandment I give you. See, our ears, our spiritual ears, and the antenna of our heart ought to go up when we hear Jesus say, I'm giving you a new commandment. Here it is. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. How many people over here like me? No, you don't have to put your hand up. Okay, one. I'm not going to ask here because I don't think there are any. There might be a couple here. Where in Scripture does it say you ought to like me because that would be a nice thing to do? Show me where it is. Give me your verse, your reference, and I'll preach on that next week. How many in the room love me? Okay. 
I've got a few people I've got to pray for. <laughs> no, it, well, that is funny, but here's why. In John 13, 34, if you never underlined your Bible before, underline it now and put a star by it. Here's, here's what it says. Jesus is speaking. A new commandment I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you. The next word is must love one another. You don't have to like me. A lot of people choose that. But Christian, brother and sister, you have no choice in the love thing. You may not be my favorite person, although you know you all are. But I'm commanded to love you. How? As Jesus loved me and as Jesus loved you. That's with an undying love. That's with a consistent love. That's with, that's with a love that never should be questioned. Say, well, I still don't like you because you're preaching too hard this morning. You don't have to like me. You just have to love me. You don't have choice. I have to love you. I don't have a choice. He says, as I've loved you, so you ought to love one another. You must love one another. Now, notice that Jesus says this is a commandment. So this isn't the Ten Commandments. This is a New Testament commandment. For those of you who like to always say, well, that's Old Testament and that does... Oh, no, no. This is the age of grace we're talking about here. And this is a New Testament commandment. And by the way, a commandment of God is a commandment, not a suggestion. It's not a recommendation. It's not a choice. It's not a buffet. Well, take what you want and what you don't like. You don't have to have it. A commandment is, this is what you'll do. And God never commands us to do anything that we cannot do. We tend to think that love is something that just happens to us. Why do we think that? Oh, oh, I, I wasn't even thinking about a relationship and, 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 and she came into my life and we just, I don't know, we just kind of fell, fell in love. <laughs> now, I'm going to be serious here. That's, that's, Humanistic thinking. That's the world teaching. That's society teaching you their value. That's like, I fell. I just fell in love. That's like falling into a ditch. <laughs> no, and for some of you, that's where he ended. I love this when people say, yeah, yeah, we're breaking up because we kind of fell out of love. That's like falling out of a tree. It's sort of like you're telling me, well, God, I couldn't help it. I just fell in love. I just, something overtook me. It's called hormones, bud. I just couldn't help it. Oh, I fell out of love, or we fell out of love. Just couldn't help it. Just something happens to you, I guess, Bob. I don't know. How silly. How shallow. How foolish is that sort of thinking? And the reason it is, is because it's just an echo of the world that we live in. It has nothing to do with anything spiritual. Even some of the songs. I remember some of the songs from the 60s. I remember some of the songs a little later on. 
I just can't help falling in love with you. Can't help falling in love with you. Someone else saying, uh, you've lost that love and feeling. Yeah, you know that one. And somebody else saying, I love you, I love you. Please tell me your name. I, I always got a kick out of that song. Oh, I love you, I love you. Please tell me your name. That's deep stuff right there. I want to say something that I bet not one person in this room has ever been told before. I'm just going to put myself out there. Here's what the Bible teaches. Love is something that we can control. God commands us to love each other, which means I can will, I can desire to love you and you, in turn, can will or desire or decide, is a better word, to love me. So this love thing is not a hopeless situation at all. Now, what kind of love is being talked about here? In Philippians 2.4, Paul says that he wants us to behave as Jesus Christ behaved. In other words, to love in the same way that Jesus loved. Loving like Jesus. And here's the way Jesus loved. Paul said in that verse, Philippians 2.4, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, love becomes unselfish. Boy, wow. You begin to think about other people. You, you begin to be interested in their interests first. And you think and act towards them and their interests just like you would toward yourself and your interests if there was nobody else in your life. You become unselfish. Now, I want to apply that in several different areas of our lives and make it practical. And how to apply this proper love. In other words, how do we love like Jesus loved? So how do we apply proper love? I'm going to give you some examples, and I hope you'll follow them. Here's how, first of all. First of all, let's see how that would work in the context of the family. Let's suppose, wouldn't this be something? Wouldn't this be revolutionary? Wouldn't this change the complexion of our church, our communities, our neighborhood? Our, it, could, it could affect our world. Somebody's got to start it somewhere. But let's suppose someone in every family that's represented, even here in our fellowship, would say, I'm going home, and I'm putting this into practice i got to get over myself. i got to live larger than that. I would suggest you start with your spouse. You ought to love your husband or your wife first and foremost. You ought to be kinder, more tender, more gentle to them, even if they've been behaving like a jerk in return. Some people think as soon as somebody goes off the rails, boop, that's it. That's it. So I say begin first in your marriage relationship. You see how that would affect the atmosphere in your home? There wouldn't be any arguing. There wouldn't be any hollering. There wouldn't be any bickering. There'd be no sharp words between each other because their interests are just as important now as yours. 
And pretty soon it filters down to the relationship you share with your children. Maybe it'll even filter down to the relationship you have with your in-laws and your outlaws. Every family has both. And everybody else in the family, pick one. Just because you love them. Because that's what Jesus commands us to do. You see, my take on this is so simple, I probably oversimplify it, and that is we don't have any choice in this. You can't pick and choose when God commands you to do something. So it begins in the family, and then that spills over into the church family in this, in this case. In fact, in the next verse, that, uh, after the one I just quoted, John 13, 35, you may want to get that in your notes, Jesus speaking again, and here's what he said, By this they shall all know that you are my disciples. How will they know? How will they know? Does anybody know the answer? The rest of that? If you have love for one another. So how will people know that we are Jesus' disciples and truly his followers? Say it with me. If we have love one for And here's the key. That's the way the world is going to find out that the message of Jesus Christ is valid. Most of the people you know who are outside of Christ, outside of faith, outside of any church relation, outside, and they're in, living in the world, they don't, they would maybe come out and tell you this, but they don't think this whole claim of Jesus Christ is really a valid one. And they're hoping it isn't. Sad. But if we are really going to love each other the way Jesus loved us, then we'll have to develop in our own lives the same kind of compassion for people that Jesus had. <laughs> I, I remember reading this story. It's just a little clip. Uh, but it really spoke to me. This man was talking about, um, he rented on a, on a particular weekend. He was home with his kids, and uh, he was, they were doing some family time together. And he, he decided to rent the movie Free Willy. How many of you know they freed Willie? Okay. And he's watching it with his little grandchildren. He said they were just enthralled with that movie, and why wouldn't they be? And he said, especially one grandson. He was about five years old. You can picture this. He said when we got ready to start the movie and had our popcorn and we were all set and everything was good, he said the little guy brought his little chair and he set it right in front of the TV set, and he said, I swear to you, for two solid hours, he didn't move as he watched that movie. Matter of fact, he said, that, dad, that uh, grandfather said, I watched his eyes. They were so fixed on the screen. He was mesmerized. He was watching everything. And let me tell you something. When you see a young child like that and they're taking it all in and you ask them afterwards, they can tell you more about it. You'd have to watch it seven times. They could be standing on their head and hanging from the chandelier, but they'd get more out of it than you and I would on purpose. And that little guy wasn't budging. He wasn't moving. And the grandfather said, you could see at certain times little tears in his eyes. And at other times you could see his body just kind of shaking because he was laughing when he was supposed to laugh. And I thought of that story and I thought, that child was totally caught up in that movie. You ever get caught up in something, just totally caught up in it? 
just so identifying with what's going on that, that you actually became a part, you became involved in, in, as part of the story. Well, that's what we call compassion. And it'll cause us to ask ourselves some pretty tough questions. Questions like, what's it like to hurt deep inside? When no one knows you're hurting and you don't feel free to tell them that you are hurting. What's that like? What's it it like being sick, very, very sick, and knowing you're not going to get well? And wanting more than anything else just to live. What's that like? What's it like to be handicapped and severely, severely hampered from any of life's normal activity. What's that like? What's it like to be an unrecognized minority? What's it like to be dealing with marital problems or domestic problems that no one else can really identify with? What is that like? What's it like? What's it like? What's it like? My friends, what kind of burdens are people around you carrying? And do you care enough to help them bear those burdens? That's our question. That's where this boils down. That's where the Reebok meets the sidewalk. What about it? That's what it means when Jesus talks about loving one another as he loved us with compassion. And finally, if we'll start in the home and it filters down from the family to the family in the church, it should then make its way flowing into what we call the workplace. I call it the marketplace. We do it when we show those people who work next to us that Jesus Christ is our Lord. Not just with words, but by the example we set. The greatest sermons in the world are those without words. They're not the ones I preach. They're the ones you preach without saying a word. Think of your job. Think of where you work. Maybe you have a hard boss. You don't like that boss very well. You know that boss doesn't like you. Maybe you have a work partner or or a colleague uh, in the workplace uh, that that makes fun of the way you live your life. Goody two-shoes. Mr. Church Boy. Some of you heard that. Jesus said this when, when we're being persecuted. He said, we're to love... Why did we... Where did we lose this, Christian? We're to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Instead of that, we lash out and beat them up physically and more importantly, verbally. Jesus said very clearly, we're to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Are we doing that? Do we do that? Is that how we live it out in the marketplace? 
In fact, Paul writes in Romans 12, verses 20 and 21, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You want to get even with somebody? That's the best way to do it. Their evil gets worse, your good gets better. Paul says that's just heaping coals of fire on their head. That's just probably enraging them all the more. But the fact is, that's the only way you're going to get through to their heart. I'm going to close with a story. It's been on the books for a long time. Quite a while. Story of a man by the name of Doug Nichols. N-I-C-H-O-L-S. I want to share this with you because I think it brings home and illustrates what I've been trying to say this morning better than anything else probably I've said. So simple, so easy to understand, and so easy to identify with that it's... I came out of the service last week, and I had more people comment on the whole spirit of that morning. I thought last Sunday morning was the most powerful work of the Spirit in this place that I'd seen in a long time. And, and the message was fantastic, and the music was great, and the spirit of cooperation, and I feel it here today too. I'm not saying one's better than another. They're all different. They're all, they're all meant to serve something. But, but um, you know, sometimes we, we try to say something, and we can't quite say it, or we can't quite get it. And I came to this conclusion after I had met a lot of people after service, that last Sunday, and I feel the same about this message today, last Sunday, there wouldn't be one single person in this building that couldn't take something or learn something from that message that was preached. And I kind of feel that way this morning. I don't think there's anybody here exempt from what I'm saying. And so to tie it together, let me tell you Doug Nichols' story. A number of years ago, Doug Nichols left his home, and he went to India to be a missionary there. Now, the first thing he had to do, and probably for a couple of years after he got to India, is he had to study the language. While he was still studying the language and hadn't really gotten into any of his work, Doug became infected with tuberculosis, and he had to be put in a sanitarium. And any of you that are old enough to remember when all of that was happening back in the 50s, um, it was a pretty sad lot for people. It really was. I know people that were in sanatoriums for 12, 15, 18, 20 years, and some never got out wasn't a good place to be, wouldn't be a good place to be when you're far from home, and, and I don't say this in a, in, a, in a nasty way, but it wouldn't be a good place to be in the country of India. It was not very clean. The conditions were very difficult because there were no, so many sick people there. That, that, that itself just made it worse. But Doug Nichols decided to do the best thing he could do in the situation. So he took some of the Christians, many of the Christian books and literature and whatnot, uh, that he had in his possession, and he tried to witness while he was in that sanitarium, in that hospital. And he said, every time I tried to pass out a piece of literature or recommend a book to somebody or read some, something from the Bible to someone, 
It just, they just wouldn't take it. They wouldn't accept it. He said, I tried to just witness through my speech, and he was handicapped because of inability to communicate in the language, and, and he felt so down, so discouraged, so defeated. Now, here he was. Because of his illness, he's going to be there for a long time, going to be in that almost like incarceration, if you will, but it seemed like the work that he had been sent to do was not going to be done because no one would even listen to him because no one could understand him, and he was a sick man. Well, because of his tuberculosis, every night at about 2 o'clock, he said, it's just like clockwork, really, he said he would wake up with this chronic coughing, and it was a cough that would not quit. It was deep, and it was awful. He said one night when he awoke, he noticed across the aisle in another bed an old man, an older, older man, trying to get out of bed. And he said, this little man would roll himself up into a little ball and he would teeter back and forth trying to get up enough momentum <laughs> to get up and stand on his feet, but he just couldn't do it. He was altogether too weak and too sick. Finally, after several attempts, the old man laid back on his bed and wept. Next morning, Doug understood why the man was weeping. He'd been trying to get up to go to the bathroom, and he didn't have enough strength to do that. So needless to say, his bed was a mess. There was an awful stench in the room. So the other patients decided they would make fun of this older man. Even when the nurses and aides came to clean up his bed, they weren't very kind to him. Matter of fact, one of them slapped him. And Doug said it just broke his heart. The old man just laid there and cried and cried. Doug said, well, the next night, at, again, about 2 o'clock in the morning, I started coughing again like, like a fool. He said, I looked across the way, and there was that old man trying to get out of bed once more, and I really didn't want to do it. Somehow, I managed to get up, and I walked across the aisle, and I helped this dear old fellow stand up. He was too weak to walk. Doug said, I took him up in my arms and I carried him like a baby. He was so light, it wasn't very difficult. And I took him into the bathroom, which was nothing more than a dirty hole in the floor. And I stood behind him and I cradled him in my arms as he took care of himself. And then I carried him back to his bed and I laid him down. As I turned to leave, he reached up and grabbed my face and pulled me down close and kissed me on the cheek and said what I think was, thank you. Doug said, the next morning, there were patients at my ward waiting in line for me to wake up. And they asked me for some of my books and some of my literature that I brought. Others just had questions about the God I worshipped and about his son, Jesus. Doug Nichols says that in the next few weeks, he gave out all the literature that he had brought into the sanatorium. And many of the doctors and the nurses and the patients in that sanitarium came to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior too.
He said this in conclusion. Now, what did I do? I didn't preach a sermon. I couldn't even communicate in their language. I didn't have a great lesson to leave with them. I didn't have wonderful gifts to offer them. All I did was take an old man to the bathroom. And anyone can do that. Somebody has said, you've all heard it. They will not care how much you know. Until what? They know how much you care. Beloved, there is a more excellent way, and it's the way of Jesus Christ. And I want to just say this as I close this morning. If you are here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, we want to extend his invitation to you. I won't embarrass you in any way. I won't call you out of the crowd in any way. I will just invite you that in the next few moments, you just reach forward and get one of the Connect cards that are in the seat pockets there beside you or behind you or in front of you, wherever. Just give us some, a minimal amount of information. We don't need your personal life history. But if you have an interest in knowing more about Jesus Christ and you want to know how to move along on this journey, we're here to help you. Because nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. And we care for you. Listen to this. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one.